comfortable. You are in for a treat this afternoon. I would imagine a lot of you know Brett Carter, uh, but let me go ahead and introduce him. He is a native Coloradan, born in Denver. Yep. Uh, he started Bear Valley part-time in 92, and then uh, started full-time in 93, and graduated in 94. Um, so, for many years, he taught in the high school at Highland Christian uh, School, but the high school is no longer in existence, so that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, also, uh, many of you know that he has for many years been the director of Camp Koinonia, and uh, before that, of course, uh, grew up going and helping with Camp Koinonia. He wrote for many years for the Rocky Mountain Christian. Is it still going? No. Okay. I thought they tried to restart it. And... Um, I think that's not anymore. Okay. Okay. Another one. Um, and uh, now is the preacher at Miller Street, which is in Wheat Ridge. He actually lives in North Glen. And uh, he and his wife, Sarah, have three daughters and another one on the way that will be here sometime in the middle of December. Right. Yeah. So, without further ado, Brett Carter. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. I, I gonna, I'm going to, before I get into what I want to talk about, um, I was thinking earlier today, I was sitting in the, some of the earlier classes, which were great, and, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the world that's really bad and wrong, but uh, I want you to know that spending time with young men and young women who clearly are interested in the Bible is a huge um, it's a huge boost to make somebody an optimist. So I really appreciate being around Amen. young men and young women like you. Uh, okay, so um, I'm going to talk about, well, first let me ask you about the, have you ever been in a real cave before, like a real one? Yeah, okay. And you've been around where it's like deep into the cave. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to tell about this cave. It's pretty famous, but I need to tell you about this guy first. So we'll do a quick uh, history lesson. Can you tell me everything you know about this guy? You know who Plato was? Greek philosopher. Greek philosopher. Yeah, he did not invent the squishy stuff. He's like, okay. So there's Plato, and then there's Plato. So anything else about him? He's wearing the, the Greek robe and all stuff like that. Okay. So this might you might be interested in this, and I'll tell you why we're bringing him up. He had a teacher named Socrates. Yeah, so great. And he was interesting because he didn't want anybody writing down his stuff. Uh, so he's like, no, mess, you know, it's just keep it verbal. And he didn't want anybody to write down his stuff, so there's no books by him. But his student, Plato, would teach people what he taught. And he had a student, starts with an A, he's another Greek guy, Can you, I bet you know him. Aristotle. Nice, yeah, Aristotle. And you know how I remember the, uh, whoops. Uh, the way I remember the order is I just picture them, these four guys philosophizing in a hot tub. That's how I remember. And then he had a student named Alexander who turned out to be great. Oops, Alexander. Boy, I teach English. There it is. Okay. So anyway, so the reason I bring these guys up, it might be worth kind of pointing out. I'm going to get rid of this in a second. But there's the... Here's the Old Testament and the New Testament. These guys, their lives took place between the Testaments, and that's where they kind of show up. But I'm going to talk about him for a second. That's the reason I bring him up, but we're going to talk about these in a second, too. Okay, so there's a very famous cave 
that Plato came up with. It's uh, it's really, really famous. You, If you haven't heard about this, you will eventually. And uh, it's imaginary. Okay, so in this cave, there's a bunch of people, kind of like you, all facing one direction. So this actually works pretty well. And they're, they're prisoners, and they're in this dark cave. There's only one source of light, and it's this fire that's built behind them. Okay, so if you can imagine a fire. The heat in here kind of helps, so yeah. Picture <laughs> a fire that's burning back there, and it's the only source of light. Now, you, the prisoners, you cannot, you can't look back or anything. All you can do is face this wall, and you're sitting there, and, and this is how you were. You, it's all you've ever known, okay? So Plato's cave is at uh, what happens. In fact, there's some shadows right there. If I could find it, yeah. See those shadows right there, <laughs> passing right there. So the idea is that there's this road going up behind you guys that passes in front of the fire. So they might, if somebody came by and walked by with a sword, don't give me, you're prisoners. So, <laughs> so you're walking by with a sword, you might be able to tell it's a sword, but if I, you know, if I pointed it, you know, like this at you, be like, I'm not sure what that is. You get the gist of it, but you couldn't really tell it was a sword. Or maybe if it was a plate. If I held a plate like this back there and you saw the shadow up there, it'd be like, maybe a stick. I'd be like, ah, it's a ball. You know, no, it's a plate. And you're trying to figure it out based on the shadow. Or even a horse. I think he used that in his example. He'd drive, you know, get a horse to come by. But if you brought it straight on, you'd be like, mm, Uncle Frank, maybe. Could be. <laughs> but it depends on the shadow and the angle, right? So Plato had this idea for this cave, okay? And the whole idea is that uh, most people don't see things as they really are. He said that most people are like these prisoners in a cave who have just kind of the shadows of things. That if you really want to understand what life is about, you have to get up get free of the prison and walk outside. And then you can see things as they really are. Now, uh, Plato was not you know, a godly man. He was um, kind of sharp in some instances, but he was actually touching on something that God came up with way before him. In fact, I believe that anything that is uh, significantly true, the Bible said first. Uh, but one thing you'll notice, uh, the Bible, you'll, you may already know about this. So there's the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament. And, and it talks about, the Bible talks about the Old Testament as kind of, there's shadows in it. Is this familiar to you at all? Kind of, it will be, I'm sure, as we keep going. I, I can tell a lot of you are in uh, reading your Bibles, and this will ring a bell here pretty soon. And what it is, is in, in the Old Testament, there's kind of a general idea. And then later, there's the reality um, that kind of brings it into focus. This is like coming out of the cave and just showing you, here it is, right there, okay? Uh, in fact, here's Hebrews 10.1. I'll give you a few uh, quick examples, and then I may ask some of you to read some of these scriptures, but it talks about in Hebrews 10.1 that the Old Testament is only a shadow. That's the term he uses there of good things to come. And then Colossians 2.17 in fact, uh, somebody go ahead and read this one, Colossians 2.17. This will kind of establish where we're going with this. The Old Testament is kind of like a shadow. New Testament is kind of like the reality of that shadow. Who's got Colossians 2.17? Wants to read that. Give you a second to look up. Great. These are shadowing things to come, but the substance... 
belongs to Christ. So this is really cool. If you think about it, and where we're going with this, I think, for, at least for me, it changed the way I read my Bible every day. I, I can tell, I think I got a pretty good vibe that some of you are daily Bible readers. And I, and if you're not that yet, I'd really encourage you to become that as soon as possible. But this one, I got excited even more about reading my Bible every day is when I saw this connection, okay? So uh, remember Jesus showed up, and he comes up here, and, and they're like, you know, they're upset with him. He says, I didn't come to abolish this. Do you remember what he said? I came to fulfill it. I'm going to take everything. I'm not going to erase it. I'm going to, I'm going to crank up the volume on these things. So whatever you find in the Old Testament, you'll find in the New Testament, but upgraded. I mean, he's the perfect example. All the sacrifices, all the different kinds of stuff. He was the ultimate one. So that was the substance. I mean, the shadow. And then the, he was the reality. Uh, and by the way, I appreciate this was said more than once earlier today. Uh, typically, we talk about these like stories, you know, Noah and the ark, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Goldilocks and the three pigs. It almost kind of has the same vibe. And you have to be careful because as we're raised around the church, you're like, oh, yeah, these are just stories. No, these really happen. So I'm going to talk about these as being kind of symbolic. But what God does is he writes in metaphors that exist. So he's, he's going to take what really happened and upgrade it and make it very relevant to us. That's kind of where we're going with this. Um, so here's what I'm thinking. By the way, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot or anything. But this, this is a pretty easy question. How many of you have discovered stuff that you thought was in the Bible, but it's not? You've been like, I thought that was in the Bible. No, that's not. No. How many of you have discovered stuff in the Bible that you had no idea was in there? He's like, wow. Uh, I remember my friend and I, we were supposed to be paying attention. We found the book of Judges and we're like, oh, man, this is just, you know, violent and stuff like that. And so there's all kinds of interesting things. So here's something you may not know. If you get this in place, you're going to discover one of the most shocking things of all about the Bible. Somebody's in it that you may have not suspected and it's you this is the story of you and and it's a it's a real outliner when you realize this okay so here's here's what it comes down to in the old testament god refers to this idea of a type and these are more familiar than you might think there's type and antitype and uh type is kind of like in fact we even use that today um like how many of you have cats I mean, you have a cat. Okay, how many? Uh, can you tell me that's so typical of a cat? What's so typical? Oh, they kind of stay away from you for the most part. Yeah, so, oh, hi, I remember you. I don't remember your name, but hi, not much affection there kind of thing, depending on, unless they want to be petted, right? Um, a typical, a typical like, stereotype thing about a cat is they mess with everything and knock everything off. Yeah, so we, we, have, we have two cats and the same thing. Okay, so... Uh, so when you when something happens and it's kind of the standard for that, you say, "Oh, that's so typical." Now, unfortunately, it's kind of taken on a negative connotation. Over the you know, like you go through the drive-through at some place and they always forget the fries. That's so typical. But it's the same idea. It's the type. It's the standard for that. Uh, but in order to understand that, you need to know about the antitype. And that's the fullest expression of the type. Uh, this is the shadow, and that's the reality. Uh, here's Genesis. I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. Here's Genesis. Two, well, I'll just tell you about him. You can write it down. But Genesis 2.7, this is an easy one. We've got Adam, who's the first man. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what Genesis 2 indicates. Colossians 1.18, if you want to skim it really quick. 
also describes Jesus as the first man. And there are other parts of the Bible that actually compare Jesus to Adam, which is kind of interesting. When God said, let there be light in Genesis, he said it again when Jesus was born. He's even compared to the sun rising. So it's time to start the, the second creation. It's, it's pretty elegant stuff. Um, Genesis 3, you remember Adam disobeyed God. Uh, he brought sin into the world by disobeying God in the garden. This is pretty cool. Look at John 19.41. And this is when you start paying attention to details. and You're like, wow, this is an incredible book. <laughs> Uh, John 19.41. And you've read this, but maybe there's a detail you missed. I think it's significant. Uh, John 19.41. You know about Jesus died. Who's got John 19.41? And then I'll ask the $1,000 question. Go ahead. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden in the garden of the Where was the tomb? In a garden. How beautiful is that? So here's Adam in a garden bringing sin into the world. And here's Jesus coming out of a garden like you know, the sun or, or a plant or a new creation. These are all things that God kind of took and elegantly tied threads between. Uh, in fact, look at Romans 5.14. Romans 5. 14. And you'll notice it's going to use, depending on your translation, this idea of a type. Who's got Romans 5.14? Who wants to read that one? Great. Yeah, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins like, like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of so you catch it at the end, all of you in your trans. Does anybody have a different translation other than the word type? That's the word that's being used there. He was a type for Jesus, who would be the ultimate. He's the ultimate Adam, as you can think of it that sense. Um, another, I'll give you another quick example. Uh, here's Hebrews eight five. You have to be careful, of course. Um, it's pretty easy, especially if you've ever sat in English class. Everything means everything, you know. It can be just a free-for-all, um, and that's not what's going on. Uh, but uh, you, if you're careful, you can find these connections. Here's Hebrews 8.5. You'll notice, you, if you just refer to it, notice it says he describes the temple as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so there's this type, antitype thing. So this is kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, when you read about the tabernacle, and you, you know the verse that says your body is a temple of the Lord. And we usually use it to say don't do bad stuff to your body. And rightly so, that's fine. But that's just the surface. That's just barely sweet. What that is, it's the blueprints of Christianity. And when you read about the tabernacle and the temple and the details of it, it's talking about you. It's not just so you don't, you know, eat the wrong stuff or, you know, or something like that. It's, it's to say you are the tabernacle. You're the temple. So in, I know you get to certain parts of Leviticus and Exodus and stuff like this, and it's kind of maybe, uh, dare I say, the word boring, which is kind of an overused word. In fact, I get bored by people who use the word boring. But, they, but the idea is that you're reading about you. You're reading about you, and there are significant lessons for somebody who notices that. Here's one more before we talk about something more specific. Here's 1 Peter 3.21. And I'll ask somebody to to read that. 
We've got 1 Peter 3.21. Read that one. Okay, great. That's what his correct response to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt of your body, but as an apparel of God for your good consequence. There through, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying baptism now saves you because it's a lot like the ark, uh, just like water was used to raise them away from a sinful world, water's being used here. And again, there's these connections between the old and new, between the shadow and the reality, the type, the antitype. Okay, so I tell you all that to tell you, you know one which I'm sure is familiar to you. Let's talk about Egypt. And this is a, a very sloppy map, but here's here's Egypt down here, and then they, you know, here's the Red Sea, and then here's the Promised Land. Oops. All right, and so you're you're looking at this, and if you're paying attention, you realize that becoming a Christian. And living a Christian life is exactly what happened here. Now, again, I really want to emphasize, God didn't just make up stories and then say, and this will be kind of like being a Christian. This actually happened. He writes with reality. You might think of it that way. And so he took these and, and, and arranged them, orchestrated them to serve a purpose for us, which is incredible if you think about it. But it's very, very similar. So think about a Christian and an Egyptian. I mean, sorry, a guy who's leaving Egypt who belongs to God. Both leave behind a, a life of slavery, right? The Christian leaves behind a life of slavery. Uh, both are rescued by a leader sent by God. Uh, both pass through water to reach safety. Do you really think it's a coincidence it was a red sea? Uh, both travel through difficult terrain to survive, relying on bread and sustenance and water, things like that. And both are headed towards a place confirmed by the promises of God. This is the story of you. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 is talking about. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1. Nope, and I think I give you the wrong reference. I think it's 15. Let's go there. Nope, 10. Let's just keep saying numbers till we get it. Here's 1 Corinthians 10. And listen carefully. Everything we've been talking about, notice how God takes what happened here and says, this is you. Okay, ready? 1 Corinthians 10, 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized or immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And then look at verse 6. It says, Now these things happened as examples for us. And then verse 11. They were written for our instruction. When you read about the Red Sea, it means something. When you read about the manna and how the water came from the rock, it means something. It's happening to a Christian, but on a whole new level. Uh, Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1. Notice these terms of slavery. Uh, when, a, when somebody's baptized, you're seeing a, a prison break. They're getting out of Egypt, so to speak. Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So you're set free. And you remember when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life? 
Remember, he's, and then he even talks about himself like he's the, the water. And this, uh, um, I, I don't want to knock this idea. Some, like it just said that Jesus is our rock. It's easy to think, oh, that means he's steadfast and doesn't go anywhere. Well, there's more to it than that. A rock in the wilderness was a source of water. When it says Jesus is your rock, that means that's where you get the drink of water. Uh, when, when God brought water in the wilderness, he didn't just create a little drinking fountain on the rocks. It was He, he changed the landscape. He created a river. To, to make sure that two million people didn't die of thirst. So all these terms are tying in with the modern Christian. Uh, so we're, we're in this terrain called Earth, right? And we're trying to survive on the way. And, and so you begin to realize this isn't just about going to church. Uh, you don't just do that to show you believe in God. Christianity is a, a journey through the wilderness. First, you move through a, a baptism called the Red Sea. And then you're sustained by the bread of the word. Remember in Matthew 4, 4, what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? He's, he's talking about the bread that they survived on. Good luck getting out of here with your soul intact if you're not eating this. Uh, how could you? If this is some kind of uh, uh, temporary thing you do is kind of a side hobby, it's just not going to help you any more than, than eating. I was kind of halfway joke with people telling somebody to read their Bible. is like, say, hey, tomorrow, don't forget to eat, okay? It's, it's that necessary. If you're going to survive, you've got to have the bread. Okay. Um, there's two things about what happened here that I don't think a lot of people know. And you may already know. And you probably think of some stuff that I didn't. But there's two big ones, okay? One is that when they left, what did a lot of them want to do? They wanted to go back. That's a lesson in and of itself. There's a lot of people who become Christians saying, this is hard. I thought this was going to be, and they, they go back. So that's something that, uh, in fact, Numbers 11.5, it talks about the, they missed the food. They're like, we remember the fish that we had and the cucumbers and things like that. And, and by the way, that happened years later when they even entered the promised land and their kids had kids and they grew up. Anytime there was bad stuff going on, the go-to panic button was go to Egypt. Let's just go to Egypt because they had this nice Nile and it was lush and it looked like it was always the answer. So you can see that's so true today. When people fold spiritually, they go back to Egypt, to, to a sinful life or the world. Uh, and it's happening right now, unfortunately. Um, I want, I want, before I, I'm going to keep going here. Any thoughts that you have? Like I said, I'm really curious what's going through your mind. Any questions or thoughts before I keep going? I got some more, but I hear me talk all day long, so it's kind of all right. Yeah, please holler if you, something comes to your mind. Okay, so here, here's the thing: if I become a Christian and I'm just like everybody else in the way that I make my decisions and stuff, I'm still in Egypt. If I get baptized and become a Christian. And then I, I talk the same way. I, there's no change in my activities. I'm in danger of going back to Egypt. There's got to be this separation, right? I was here, and now I'm over here. Um, and what it is, this movement away from that life, a couple of words, sanctification. It's treated kind of as a religious word, but they mean they're really important. They basically mean set apart. <laughs> Not here. Here's the world. Here's who belongs to God. Uh, here's Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 
four, uh, 12, 14. <clears throat> Who's got that one? Who's 12? Great. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one is in the world. So you see, this is not just a super bonus expectation of really religious people, any Christian. That's the standard, is to not be like the rest of the world. Now, we will never, ever reach a point where we will outgrow our need for a Savior. We will always, always need His forgiveness, but it's always this movement away from Egypt. To take on the name Christian and then just pretend that it's okay to live in Egypt is, uh, is delusional. It's not really understanding the, the situation. Uh, you, you, you're made holy through baptism, and then you honor that gift by living a holy life because there is the danger of going back. So here's the other thing. I told you there's two things that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know that a lot of people wanted to go back. In fact, I mean, they're hardly out of Egypt before they're like, this is hard. Let's go back. But another thing, uh, which is always a shocker to me, or any, this will ruin um, the children's version, I guess. They don't make it. Uh, whatever visual you have seen before where they're all marching out of Egypt, they don't make it. They failed. Their kids made it. But for the most part, all those men and women that you see, the two million strong walking out of Egypt, their bodies are here. Here's, here's what he says. Um, Hebrews 3.17, you know, other than, of course, Joshua and Caleb, the next generation, even Moses, <clears throat> Moses, Aaron, and Miriam don't enter the promised land. Here's Hebrews 3.17. It's a pretty gruesome image. Uh, who has Hebrews 3.17? Okay, great. Now with him, now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? So he's providing this image, and it really, really happened, but it's a metaphor for the fallen who chose to be Christians, and they didn't follow through. They, they flaked out um, before reaching uh, the end. So, you know, Egypt is a good start. And by the way, I'm sure you've heard this before. When somebody's baptized, of course, huge celebration. Even heaven is celebrating. But it's not the finish line. That's when somebody's born. Sometimes we're like, yay! And then it's kind of churches like this layover where you just kind of maintain until Jesus comes again. No, you just were born. It's time to start growing and moving forward. Uh, for things to turn out well, you have to live a new life. In other words, if you see, you know, pyramids still, it's time to go. You're, you're in the wrong place. Okay, so I don't know. If, I, I, was, I looked it up for one thing uh, a long time ago, but I don't know a lot about it. How much, what do you know about the Witness Protection Program? I'm sure we know. And, and if you really know a lot about it and need to not say anything, we will not say anything. We'll cover it for you. <laughs> but uh, hopefully none of you are in it, and we're going to blow your cover. But, Kay, you've probably watched enough movies and television shows. What's the basic idea? Um, it's to protect people who could be in danger, and it's just to... Keep them safe and keep their family safe. Right. Okay. So they they were living their life, and then what happened? They witnessed crime. They're like, oh man, I saw something bad. So the person who did the bad thing is like, I'm gonna get you. So we're like, we need to get you out of here. So you get a brand new name, and they move you next door. No. No, they relocate you, right? What else do they do for you? They just give you a whole new life. Whole new life. Whole new identity. New name. New job. Everything. I, I sometimes think that becoming a Christian is like being in the witness protection program. It, it's very similar because we're going to stage your death. 
<laughs> and the enemy, you know, of course, Satan is quite aware of the situation. But in many ways, what if you knew somebody in the witness protection program? Let's say we got done here and we get this, you know, we're dismissing. Actually, I am in the witness program. Really? You get to talking about it. And, and then you go. And then, no, but you're, they're like, yeah, I really am in the witness protection program. And I'm thinking about maybe next week going back to my old neighborhood. And you would grab them. And what would you tell them? No. Why? Because it's dangerous. Why? Because the people are still waiting for you. You can't go back to your old life. It's incredibly dangerous. Why in the world would you do that? And especially all the effort that was taken to give this to you, this whole new identity. We staged your death. We made sure that you're safe. And you're going to go back for a visit? How insane is that? I, I think that helps lock in the reality for me that uh, I am a, I'm kept. J- Jude uses this uh, phrase of being kept by Jesus, and that means protected and, and safe. Uh, a real Christian is that kind of relocation. Uh, in fact, look at Colossians 1.13. This kind of ties in with everyone, everything we've been talking about. Colossians 1.13. We'll have somebody read that one. If you've got it, just raise your hand and we'll... So you see that he were removed from the darkness and transferred to a whole new place. Um, it's so very important when you're when you're in the witness protection program. You you determine your determination and how focused you are on your new life will determine whether or not you see tomorrow. That's a big deal. Okay, so I'm gonna just in case you ever need it, I'm gonna tell you the first rule of prison break. It's the first rule of a prison break. Uh, I'd be curious what you come up with. What's the first rule of a prison break? Hopefully you don't know, but I don't know. Don't get caught. Don't get caught, yeah. So first rule of a prison break, one more piece of advice. Don't get caught. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Say, hey, by the way, I just, yeah. So congrats. We're going to have a celebration. I just broke out of prison. Uh, Sir, you guys came up with better ones. Here's the first rule of prison break in my mind. Get as far away as possible as soon as possible. You don't go through the guard dogs and the searchlights and cut through the fence and then stand out just outside the property. Yay, I broke out. Foolish. Keep moving. You got to keep moving. Uh, That freedom will be very brief. It'll all be for nothing. If you claim to be a Christian and you talk like a non-Christian, James 1.26, he says your religion is worthless. You can say all day long and say, yeah, I go to church. I'm a Christian. If you don't have control of your tongue, it doesn't matter. Uh, if you compromise your purity, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you're still in Egypt. And of course, these things, we can be forgiven. But I, here's a big one, Ephesians 4, 31. If you're holding on to a grudge, if you have malice towards anyone, you're still in Egypt. you got to get out of there. Or at least you've got one foot headed that way. It's really, really dangerous. So if you're a Christian, you're kind of a spiritual fugitive, and you can't linger near the prison. Um, I think it would really help us to have that mindset of I'm uh, escaped. I've escaped from sin, and I need to hang on to my freedom. Okay. Before I tell you one more thing, um, I'm going to tell you about a real cave as opposed to the imaginary one. Does anybody have anything they want to add or questions or any thoughts you have? And I appreciate that you kept your eyelids apart right after lunch. That's a hard thing to do. I get it. Okay. And I apologize ahead of time to some of my friends that have heard this before, but it's kind of relevant. So my friend Gary, uh, he and I known each other since junior high. 
And one Christmas, we were in our 20s, and he got a book, and it's called Colorado's Caves. Caves of Colorado, that's what it's called. And he said, and I got five minutes, right? This is a five-minute story? Okay. Is that right? Sure. Okay. All right. So he said, I got this book called Colorado Caves, and he says, looking at it, I found this cave. It's called Hucka Cove's Cave, and this guy was lost in it for like three days. Let's go. And I said, okay. So he and I, we actually had a really good friendship because he would find stuff for us to do, and then I would keep us alive. I was kind of the rational guy. Uh, and so I, I'd make sure that we ended up alive after it was over. But he said, okay, let's go. So we went up, and uh, the short version is you have to go up the dirt road. And we were like, you know, these are guys in their 20s. And we, we were prepared. We went by 7-Eleven, and each of us got a disposable flashlight, a plastic one. So we had two flashlights and then a rope, and we tied it to each other <laughs> just in case one of us fell. And then the, the idea was, you know, to save the other guy. But now looking back, we're like, no, nah, that was dumb. They'd find two skeletons tied to each other. <laughs> so, but we went in. So it, it was really interesting. The entrance was a, a corrugated pipe, you know. It was a metal pipe. And we went there. We couldn't find the entrance. And I was very much like, ah, oh, it's not around here. But Gary's like, no, come on, come on. So we went over there. And it was this pipe like this big. And he says, hang on my feet. So he goes in head first. I'm hanging onto his ankles. And he goes, okay, it's cool. And he goes in. And I don't know if you know, if you're ever in a maze and you turn, like if you want, don't want to get lost, if you always turn right and always turn right and always turn right, and you're like, I don't know where I'm at. Just turn left, turn, turn left, and you're out again, right? So we thought, we'll just do that. We're not like that guy got lost for three days. We're just going to go in and we'll be smart. We went in and it was like Swiss cheese. I mean, there was there and there and there. We're like, oh, man, okay, we got to be smart. We don't want to get lost and be in the news or anything. So we're, we're tied to each other. We're going through. So we went through, and after a while, and it's a pretty big cave. After a while, we got to this part where the floor was kind of like this. Uh, and so you kind of walk like this down this little slope, and then went a little farther. And then finally we got to this uh, ledge where you kind of had to sit down, and then there was just this pit. We're kind of scooting along, and I had my flashlight, and I said, Carrie, this would not be a good place to drop your, and I dropped my flashlight. <laughs> That's exactly what happened, and we watched it go, doo, 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 and, then, and then it went out. So we were like, we need to get out of here. We had one flashlight. So we're going back, go back to the V part, going up like this, and we get back, and he's behind me, and I'm going up this way, and I hear him go, oh, and the lights just went out. I mean, it's gone. He dropped his flashlight, and it's just, and we're pretty still far in the cave. But, oh, no. So he had brought a book of matches. That's what we're down to. He's like, it's just this little match. Like, so we go, go back, and we find his flashlight. It's working. It's like, let's get out of here now. So we got, we started heading back. And then, this is really creepy, we started hearing voices. We're like, do you hear that? Yeah. Pretty soon, here comes all these lights, guys with helmets on and ropes. These professional spelunkers are coming in. And here we are, tied to each other. <laughs> With a, with a flashlight. And, and they said, do you know it's a $2,000 fine to be in here? We're like, no, sorry, we didn't. So, okay, well, that's cool. And it's fortunate that we ran into them because they had locked, at the end of that pipe, there was a little gate, and they had locked it behind them. We would have still been there going, no. Anyway, they were very nice. They took us with them a little bit, and eventually uh, we got out and we left, and we never went back. But here's my point. Here's my point. We knew when it was time to leave. We knew that if we didn't, the darkness was going to win. 
It was really, really important. There was, a, there was a, a, for quite a while, we kind of fooled ourselves and say, yeah, we got this. We got a rope, got a flashlight and thing. But there was a point where it was very, very clear to both of us, it is time to get out of here. So I guess I, I would just like to, first of all, I'd like to really encourage you to be a daily Bible reader. That will get your head clearer quicker than anything. And it'll, it's, it'll be so much fun when you realize that it's the story of you. But, you know, if, if you're not a Christian, of course, you're still in the cave. If you're a Christian, great, but keep going. And the Bible will help you do that. I really appreciate your time and focus. I don't know. Do we have a closing prayer? Should I do that? All right. We'll do that, and then we'll see what's up next. I appreciate your attention. Thanks. Steve.